Please note that this episode of AWARE features themes of gender-based violence, sexual harassment and assault, and descriptions of sexual acts. It is not suitable for audience members under the age of 18. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, it's Yolita, Emir, Rosie, and Yaz. We are the Awareness Committee, which is a part of the PPLE AIM Study Association at the University of Amsterdam. Welcome to our podcast, AWARE. Our podcast focuses on spreading awareness about important societal issues, such as human rights abuses, gender inequality, and climate change, and aims to promote diversity among PPLE students. This month's topic is women rights and activism. Our first guest is Dr. Mary Mikola, who has been appointed Professor of Philosophy at the UVA. Mikola's academic interests are primarily in feminist and social philosophy. Her most recent publications, which include several articles and a book, have focused on philosophical perspectives on pornography. Our second guest is Dr. Misha Decker, who is obtaining his PhD on the emergence of street harassment as a public problem in France and the Netherlands. He is a teacher at the Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Amsterdam. For his PhD, he did a project on the Me Too movement where central themes included feminism and stigmatization. Hi, welcome to our podcast, AWARE, the first podcast of the Awareness Committee. Thank you guys so much for joining us today, and we are really excited to kick off our new project with you. What we hope to achieve through this podcast is awareness about women's issues, um, specifically for Women's Month, and we will be covering issues about women in pornography and sexual harassment in the Me Too movement. We are joined today by Dr. Mary Mikola and Dr. Misha Decker. Would you like to further introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your research? Uh, so, so, so thanks a lot. I'm uh, really glad and uh, honored to, to be invited for this, uh, for this podcast. Uh, so, so my name is Misha Decker. Uh, I'm, uh, well, as I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm defending my PhD uh, on street harassment, on the politicization of uh, street harassment uh, in the Netherlands and in France in two months. Um, so I, I, I did research uh, for my PhD on the basis of interviews with politicians. I did um, uh, yeah, many, many interviews and observations with, with activists, with uh, police, uh, journalists, to, 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 to understand how this issue of street harassment uh, was politicized, be, became an, an issue of, of, of public debate and also of, uh, of policy in uh, the Netherlands and uh, France. Um, so, uh, yes, as, so, so as, as, as for your question, how, how did I get into this uh, field? Um, I guess what, what, yeah, before when I started working on, on my uh, project for uh, a PhD contract, um, it's always a period when, when, when you speak with many different people about what, what's an interesting uh, issue to, to, to work on for the next four or five years. Um, and I guess in this period, I've, I was discussing a lot with different uh, friends, so, and, and I realized that yeah, that many of my female friends uh, spoke a lot about these daily interactions in, in public space, which even at this point in Netherlands and France didn't have a very clear name uh, yet. Uh, so being whistled at, being uh, very insistently com complimented on, uh, being followed around. Um, and that for many of my female friends, this was a, a completely self-evident part of their daily experience and, and, and very cumbersome uh, experience. 
uh, and I realized at this point, so this was in uh, 2015, um, that many of the male friends I spoke to, this was so this was way before me too. Uh, yeah, for them this was really not something which they thought about a lot actually. Uh, so I found that really interesting to work on, on that different experience of, of public space uh, between uh, yeah people of, of, of different uh, genders. So that's how I started working on this uh, on this issue actually uh, at this point. And I, I realized that, that although there was some uh, research in uh, the US, both in France and, and in the Netherlands, actually hardly any academic work had been done on uh, on harassment in the in the streets. Most most work focused on uh, harassment at, at work or uh, and, and not so much on the street. So, so that's how I started working on this. Yeah. Thanks. Indeed. Thanks. Thanks so much for having having me too here as well. Um, excuse for the pun. So I'm a, I'm fairly recent. Um, I'm a professor of philosophy here at the University of Amsterdam, and I've only started on the first of January. So I'm quite new to the country and I'm not Dutch by birth so I'm, so in that sense I'm, I'm, I'm quite new to, to, to both to the University of Amsterdam um, but also to the Dutch context in, in for, from a personal perspective um, and I've, I've, I'm originally um, from Finland but I haven't lived in Finland since 1996 and um, that's and I've moved to the UK back in the day and did all of my studying there, and um, went to um, do a master's um, at the University of Sheffield, and happened to find um, a philosopher who was like me, uh, also a feminist. And as then in the 2001, I started my my PhD on feminist philosophy simply sort of combining two of my interests um, in uh, philosophy and, and, um, and feminism. But I didn't originally start working on pornography or any forms of sex work, but really in very, um, back then, um, this was not a researched topic at all. Nowadays, much more about conceptions of gender. So what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? What do we talk about when we talk about gender? Um, but I, after my PhD and after having worked a few years, I um, took up um, a position, a professorship in Germany in 2010 in Berlin. And Berlin happened to be, unbeknownst to me, a very, they have a, a very big pornography scene, so to speak. So there are, every year there's a big um, um, porn film festival and every two years there's also a feminist porn film festival. And I, you know, got to know a lot of the people then who were in the industry and it just seemed to me that a lot of the discussions in feminist philosophy were quite there was a big disjointedness in the way that feminists feminist philosophers were talking about pornography and especially the people who are in the industry and the people that I met then in Berlin who were kind of part of this and I thought that there was work to be done um, trying to correct some what seemed to me to be also misconceptions about um, women's agency um, in pornography and and about how the industry is set up. So that's what I've been uh, working on more in the last 10 years um, and I think um, well this culminated in a, in a book that I published in 2019 um, called Pornography a Philosophical Introduction where I then try to bring a lot of the themes together that I've sort of observed not just in in the academia but also sort of more in the in the industry and in on the kind of so to speak 
sort of on the streets and, and in ordinary people's lives. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. So actually off of that, um, just to begin, because I think there may be some misconceptions about what really is meant and what is encompassed by the word pornography. So could you clarify to what extent it applies to different types of media and not just film and what really falls under this category and then what the main problems are that arise from it? I think the main problem both uh, philosophically and in the academia and in everyday um, contexts is simply that edit means so many different things to different people. And we are constantly talking past one another. And this, I think, is, has been one of the... So I actually, in my work, um, I don't define pornography because I don't think that it is something that we can give a definite um, sort of overarching definition um, for. I think we're talking about a very multifaceted phenomenon, a big industry um, that uh, has, I mean, as you would expect in any large industry, um, there's just going to be so many different experiences, so many different ways that um, that people can create products um, and so on. So I think there's obviously the sort of very ordinary idea that involves somehow uh, nudity and scenes of sexual nature and is used typically as masturbation materials and so on. I think even this is a little bit misleading in that there's actually quite a lot of pornography that doesn't involve nudity. There's plenty of um, fetish pornography genres that don't um, don't involve nudity. Um, often also pornography can involve sex that we wouldn't, well lots of people wouldn't actually think of as sex. So when people think about pornography they have a very traditional heteronormative conception in mind. I think again this is a very narrow part of the of the industry. There's lots and lots of um, different kinds of pornography. And even the idea that pornography is just used uh, sort of as masturbation materials, there is now more and more empirical evidence um, to suggest that it's also used just um, to pass the time. People are looking at it, looking at pornography as um, sex education um, materials. Uh, there's all sorts of um, ways in which pornography is used which don't have anything to do with this kind of old, more old-fashioned idea of just sort of as a sexual surrogate. Um, so these are some of the, the issues that I've been wanting to pull out in my, in my sort of research is that I think there are very simplistic um, conceptions and the reality is much more, much more complicated and multifaceted than people realize. So we'd love to hear more from you, uh, you Misha, and your work uh, in the research that you did about sexual street harassment in uh, France and the Netherlands. We'd love to know uh, the different differences that uh, you saw uh, within these two countries, how the different cultures uh, played into those differences, um, and how uh, these women uh, in these different cultures uh, bear uh, this degradation. What's interesting also with respect to, to what uh, Marie said is, is, is that also in, in my research I don't employ my own definition of, uh, of street harassment. So I, uh, the, the, the aim is really to, to understand how different actors in each country uh, define uh, which acts, which, which behaviors are, are part of this category. Um, and as a researcher I, I don't have my own definition of uh, of, of street harassment. Uh, and actually, yeah, it, when, when, when you look at, at these two countries, what's I think interesting about this comparison is that this issue was uh, politicized and 
uh, conceived of so so differently that uh, in France so, so you see actually at, at more or less at the same time you see this issue uh, emerging so starting 2012 and especially 2014 when you start to see different uh, hashtags and, and activist groups uh, were often in, inspired by American groups uh, for instance there's stop stop street harassment in the US there's uh, the Hollaback movement in the US, uh, which have uh, chapters internationally in all kinds of different uh, cities, including in uh, cities in, in France and the Netherlands. And also one, one big influence uh, was also uh, with a sparked a lot of media attention was the uh, Belgium video actually from Brussels uh, by um, a young student, uh, a young Flemish student, Sophie Peters, who made a, a video, um, Femme de la Rue. Um, and yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting case to compare it to see this issue uh, emerging at, at, at the same point in time in these two countries. Uh, and then in France, it's uh, picked up by different uh, feminist activist groups. Um, and also, yeah, which translates later into being taken up by uh, what in literature is often called uh, state feminist. So, so state feminism refers to persons working within the administration, employing an, an explicitly feminist uh, approach. Uh, so yeah, you, in, in France, you see that, that different groups of actors, so um, activists, uh, researchers, uh, policymakers, employ this uh, feminist approach and feminist definition of street harassment as a violence against women, uh, produced by structural uh, gender uh, inequalities, uh, and it's mostly uh, the left, who, who, so feminists associated with the, with the French left. Um, so in the Netherlands, this issue is really put on the agenda and dominated by the by right-wing parties, by and, and most in the far far-right parties, uh, where we have a very different kind of understanding of, of what this problem is about, what uh, uh, what produces uh, this this problem of, of of street harassment. So they they link it much less to to structural gen, gen, gender inequalities um, and to harassment at work, for instance, or harassment in other uh, spaces. Um, and mainly uh, conceive of it as a, as a problem produced by immigration. So you really see this issue being picked up in very different ways in these, uh, in these two places, showing that, yeah, we often speak about Me Too and, and about uh, this increasing attention for street harassment as global cultural change with respect to harassment and sexual violence. But actually we see that, that yeah, there's very different ways in which this issue is understood, is understood locally. And yes, there is attention for this issue of sexual violence and harassment in many different places around the world. And I think that's really uh, yeah, a huge increase that we see over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, but it really doesn't mean there's, there's uh, necessarily a cultural homogenization uh, that, that actually is really incorporated into local uh, political debates, local political uh, struggles. And my aim and my research is really to understand how do different actors uh, define which acts are part of it and which not. And, and uh, yeah, I think to, to study this, uh, it helps not, not to have my own definition of, of, of futurism. Thank you very much. Um, so kind of since we've been touching upon this theme of uh, stigmatization, uh, I'd like to ask uh, Mary, uh, Coming back to your research uh, field, do you think that pornography or sex work in general has affected the perception of women in certain fields or instead enforced bigger stigmatization? In, of course, within the sex, within sex work and within the pornography industry, there's still a lot of stigmatization. And so that is certainly, certainly the case. Um, but I, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say anything very 
definite again about this issue because there is a very wide old ranging these uh, sorts of ideas about women needing to be respectable and needing to be somehow chaste and not you know shouldn't be wearing uh, you know short skirts and and going out um out into town but at the same time of course there are images that are not just coming from pornography but from lots and lots of popular culture about um young women in particular you know needing to be somehow promiscuous because if you are then not promiscuous then you're recipient of a different kind of stigmatization the problem is that you're either you know you you can be branded as a as a, as a slut or, or a prude i don't think this type of stigmatization is in any way unique to pornography and until arguably before the internet came around um this type of stigmatization came much much more heavily from um just ordinary media tvs um typical sort of romance novels. And so many of the, in a sense, the pornography tropes that are there are also piggybacking much older cultural constructions about gender and femininity, as opposed to being um, somehow responsible for those. So with the rise of especially the media and different movements, such as for more women's rights and freedom of sexuality and expressing themselves, there comes kind of a bit of a contradiction or a bit of a tension. Could sex work and pornography be considered as freeing for women and where they are expressing their sexuality and freedom in that sense? Or is it really just degradation and it should be ended? So could you shed light on, on that tension of where do we draw the line of this is empowering women or actually it is just another way? to degrade them. There's always, I think, going to be a bit of a called in English you say a double-edged sword. You're sort of damned if you do, but you're damned if you don't. Um, and particularly, I mean, this is something that um, people who are performers um, have voiced that there's also very much of this idea that either you do sex work completely out of your own free will or you are coerced into it. But the idea that that somehow, of course, much of our work is 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 not of this kind. Um, there are lots and lots of very menial jobs that people are not necessarily somehow physically coerced to doing, but that they wouldn't do if they had some other forms of income. And there, in a sense, the what is what is worrisome a little bit is that this becomes kind of very strong and polarized in a lot of sex work, and it's very difficult for sex workers and and, and people who are in the pornography industry to make the to speak very frankly about the industry and to try to sort of make the case that there is something empowering about this type of work but of course that doesn't mean that you're going to have wonderful experiences 100 percent of the time but what is problematic about the idea that um about the emancipatory discussions is that if you happen to mention that you've had bad experiences then it immediately looks like you become you can become victimized and it looks like you're just sort of a dupe of patriarchy but so one other thing that i've um, heard people um performers who are more in the feminist um fair fair trade pornography movements their view is that this is again it's it's a big industry there are just going to be you know bad people in a big industry as there are in any big industry and this doesn't necessarily trade on whether the pornography produces or if the pornography somehow is labeled as as ethical or fair trade um, or if it's considered to be more mainstream that they've had good 
very good working experiences in mainstream pornography and some bad working experiences in what would be known more as alternative feminist um, sort of fair trade pornography. Again, the emancipation is, it's, I certainly think it's possible, but again, it's very difficult to say very clearly, okay, so these are the emancipating experiences and these are the non-emancipating ones. To react to that, yeah, it's, it's a really central tension to, to, to many different issues with which feminists engage, right? In the same way, on this issue of, of sexual harassment, you, you also have uh, this question of, of the stigmatization of uh, women or LGBTQI persons as, as victims, telling people you have been harassed or what you just experienced at work or in the street, that's something we call harassment or that you should consider uh, harassment. And saying someone is, is a victim of something and this status of, of victim is often quite painful for, for people, right? It, it seems to imply some kind of passivity, for instance, a lot of awareness raising in, in high schools. Uh, and a lot of resistance to feminist awareness raising in these high schools on this issue of harassment comes from the fact that the girls feel like they're being pushed into the role of a passive victim um, and maybe sometimes even for behaviors they don't even consider violence, right? So that's, that's a very complicated issue for, for feminist activists to, to engage with. How, how do you deal with women or, or girls that say, uh, I like it if, if people whistle me all the time or even uh, kind of a sexualized compliment in the street, it makes me feel uh, uh, flattered or... Um, so, so that's really a tension. And yeah, for instance, in, in France, with regard to, to the issue of prostitution also, for instance, there's this term that's used in, in, in the debate on prostitution of the absolute victim, uh, which is used, used by some feminists who say the absolute victim is a sex worker who, who doesn't understand that what she is undergoing uh, is actually domination and it is, is actually oppression. So, so she's already a victim of a form of sexual violence that is sex work. And then also she, she, she's an absolute victim in a sense that she doesn't understand she's a victim of this. I think in all these different issues we have this tension. Obviously telling people you, you, you are a victim and suggesting that they're suffering from some sort of false consciousness that they don't understand their own their own condition can be a bit embarrassing perhaps. So I think on many of the different issues you, you have this question. Right, that's it. I mean interestingly English doesn't really have a very good translation but uh, in Germany these discussions have really moved away from talking about victims and using the term betroffener. And I mean, that translates as kind of affected, um, I guess that can be in a negative or positive way. You can be affected by various forms of, of, of gender discrimination. So we wouldn't sort of say that people are victims, even though they are affected, because that precisely has the kind of more the active connotations as opposed to this idea of victimhood, which is passive, that you're just sort of this recipient. Of, of, of sexist um, harassment and patriarchy. And uh, that's an interesting move, I think, in German language, especially coming from activist circles. The term that I did come across uh, that's used in the American context, especially in um, services for women that, that are victim of uh, domestic violence, is the term survivor. So you're not a victim, you're a survivor, which I think this, yeah, you see that there's much reflective work on the side of uh, feminists to work with that. Whereas victim might, might really convey this idea that you have undergone years of domestic violence without doing anything about it. A term such as violence conveys more the, the, the sense that you have lived through a really uh, hard experience, but, but you, you haven't been completely invested. So you would both say that language is certainly a powerful tool that should be employed more to change the narrative surrounding either sexual harassment or women in pornography, and it can be effective. Right. I mean, I certainly, generally speaking, um, avoid using the term victim unless of course we're talking 
about specific cases, but I think that it's not a, a helpful tool. And I think that there's lots of ways in which language can be modified with very good consequences and results, and in fact, making our language even more precise. I agree, yes. I think also, if you look, for instance, at uh, the work of uh, Catherine McKinnon, who's an American uh, feminist working on uh, also pornography, partly, but, but also on the issue of sexual harassment at work. She also describes the necessary condition for solving uh, and addressing issues like harassment and other types of violence is naming them, right? First, they, they need to be given a name. And I think in that sense, yes, yeah, sexual harassment was not a term that really existed before the 70s. Street harassment didn't really exist before the early 2000s, uh, at the, well, at least in public debate. So I think, yeah, labeling things as, as being harassment or, or violence in, in some way becomes a way for people who've gone through it to say, I've, I've, I'm, I, I have gone through something that's not acceptable, that I should not accept, that society should, should do something about. So I think language, yes, it's, it's really crucial for any kind of emancipatory change. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the, these cultural shifts that we see are very important uh, to the feminist cause. Um, and we saw a large one in the Me Too movement, where survivors had this large audience available to speak about their experiences. I'd like to ask you, Misha, how economic class and ethnicity and your socioeconomic background affects the success rate of such movements? Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting question. It, I mean, with these movements such as Me Too, we, we all tend to speak about them as being a way for people to speak out about something that's been really cumbersome for them. But I think it's always important to think about who are speaking out and uh, who have the resources and uh, possibilities to speak out and who don't. It's not accidental, the, the fact that it's mostly, mostly really well-known people, celebrities, uh, well-known actors or producers, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., on whom most debate has focused, right? So I think also without in any, any way relativizing the violence that, that has been committed against these women, it is true that they, that they are women with certain social class, with uh, who are often also quite famous celebrities who have certain resources, money, access to social media, for instance, which allows them to publicize their experiences with, with violence. And there has been less attention perhaps for harassment and violence against uh, sex workers who perhaps have less resources at, at their disposal to uh, politicize uh, the violence that they are victim of. That also relates back to the issue of stigmatization, obviously. So yeah, I think that's, that's really important to take into account who, who speaks out and in, in what way and what kind of stories are acceptable and, and what not. Michel Foucault in, in, in the History of Sexuality, he writes, yeah, it's, it's important really to, to be attentive to who's able to speak about sexuality. So he says in, in the 60s, there's this whole discourse that now we can speak out about uh, sexuality, but he says actually there's a very long history of uh, speaking about sexuality through uh, speaking to the priest, uh, speaking to medical practitioners uh, or psychologists. I think with this, this speaking out question, it's always important to, to see what stories do they produce and which stories do they not produce. And Mary, would you say that there's also a difference in the treatment of women in porn based on similar factors such as for example, their ethnicity or racial background, um, social status, would you say that in certain cases they are treated better if they have a higher social standing or if they're more well-known or if they have more money or if they're white versus a woman of color? Do you notice differences in their treatment? Absolutely. I mean, especially from the U.S. pornography industry, I mean, it's very well-known fact that the people who get paid the least in the industry are Black women of color. There's a very sort of stark way in which uh, payments work that even within the categories of black cis women, those who tend to just have lighter skin tones will get paid more than other um, women of color. And there's no 
sort of question about this, and it's not a it's not a secret um, in the slightest. And I mean, I of course entirely agree that there are certainly in sex work, not just in 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 the pornography industry, but sex work more generally. The, the voices we tend to hear are, of course, the ones who already have some relative social power. And there have been lots of discussions about various um, laws and also in, I think, in both in the Netherlands and Germany um, about trafficking laws and whether these are, in fact, um, helpful or not, because there's a lots of voices that we just don't have access to. And would you say it's different in um, feminist porn, that it takes a more intersectional approach, or is this really across the whole industry that this is a big problem? So it's not so, well, it depends on, so there are typically two kinds of industry practices when it comes to payment. Um, I mean, this is, I'm talking about the US context here entirely. Um, so there are, there's the sort of traditional way of getting paid for particular scenes. So lesbian scenes, for instance, typically always pay less than heterosexual scenes. Anal scenes pay more than penal vaginal penetration scenes. So there's been a sort of this a scale of the more hardcore you go, the, the better you get paid. And this is something that many people who are in the feminist um, pornography side and who are more in the ethical fair trade uh, pornography um, side, you get paid a flat fee. So you don't get paid by the type of scene that you're contracted to do. And what happens is when the, the filming takes place, it's entirely up to the performers to then choose what types of scenes they want to do. So this, in a sense, the, the fact that you don't get paid if you do more hardcore scenes, of course, takes away then a lot of the understandable sort of economic incentive to maybe, maybe go through with scenes that you don't feel particularly um, comfortable with and that you don't feel particularly happy about. And that, in a sense, is the, one of the, the key central points of feminist, or what I would call feminist pornographies, that it's not just about what's being depicted, but it also is about how the entire sort of industry practices around payment and uh, choosing your own scenes um, works. And in terms of um, consent or sexual violence, is there a clear-cut difference in that as well? I mean, do you notice a difference between regular pornography and feminist pornography, and also between how cis men are treated compared to cis women? So one thing that feminist pornography tries to do is to avoid certain kinds of tropes. So these kinds of standard tropes that are quite tired, I mean, the sorts of you know, the pizza delivery guy on the door and who you first sort of say no to, but then, you know, obviously you go ahead with it because it's just this sort of token resistance. And one other um, sort of trope that many feminist um, pornographers and alternative pornographers very consciously and actively avoid are what's known in the industry as money shots. So sex culminating on um, a cis man ejaculating on the woman's face. Um, so these are the kinds of typical tropes that uh, people who are in the alternative industry sort of really consciously go out of their way to avoid. But at the, having said that, I do think that it's also very important, um, and of course it's not going to be transparent to spectators, it's really important to know how the work is organised. Because it might be that, for instance, in lots of um, production companies that are specialists in BDSM um, or kink um, productions. There's lots of what might look very transparently as being sort of violence and degradation, but given the way that 
filming is organized given the kinds of roles that the performers themselves have, how good the conditions of consent are. It's difficult to sort of just look at the images that are on the, on the screen and think that there is something violent and de degrading going on um, without taking the, then the context of production into account. And so, for instance, very famously, there was a, um, a production company called uh, kink.com where they had um, a case of a famous male performer. Then our female performers were um, accusing him of having transgressed boundaries of consent, having um, engaged in non-consensual sex and and. Um, King.com then in fact released sort of guidelines um, as part of their sort of trying to improve the, the industry practices to say like look here we completely are against this the performer male performer in question was you know sacked from from the production company so I think these are the sort of the really the difficulties um, when we're dealing with um, with something like sex work and pornography. Since we're talking about consent, for Misha, I'd love to know how you've seen the Me Too movement change the dynamic around consent and the importance around it in today's society. If we think about what 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 is emancipatory change and, and what 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 changes the way yeah in this case mostly women and men interact, I think a movement like Me Too it's both about change in power relations, right? So what we see right now already with, with, with Dominique Strauss-Kahn in that sense in 2011, in that sense also Me Too was replaced within a much longer dynamic, I think, in which we see an, an increasing number of, of scandals around these kinds of issues o over the last uh, two decades. It's a change in power balances, right? So I think the fact that many famous directors, uh, actors are being publicly accused of sexual violence, that it changes something in power balances, right? And, and it's also, I think, a, a product of changes in power balances. There is an emancipation of, of women at, at work, increasing number of women in, in powerful positions. So it gives them power to, to denounce this. And in that sense, I think there will be more men now than 10 years ago thinking twice just because the consequences might be harsher than, than 10 years ago. But I think at, at the same time, emancipation is, is not just about changing power balances. It, it's also a kind of collective process of production of reflexivity. People become more, more reflective about their behavior beyond the risk of uh, losing your job as, 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 as a man who committed violence or be, being shamed by, on social media and in the environment. I think something like Me Too produces a lot of reflexivity. In that sense, it's really an unprecedented movement in discussion about what, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. That's how, how I would conceive of, of Me Too as, a, as an emancipatory force in terms of changing the power balances. In terms of consent, as Marie said before, um, people have many different definitions of pornography. In the same way, for people working on the issue of harassment, the question is always who, who decides when it's harassment. You also see really different responses. So if you look really specifically, for instance, I looked at um, victimization surveys in France and, and in the Netherlands on, um, on street harassment. So uh, quantitative surveys in which they ask uh, thousands of people, have you experienced specific sets of behavior? And street harassment is operationalized really differently actually in the French surveys than in the uh, Dutch ones. So in French surveys, people are asked, have you, over the last 12 months, been whistled at, complimented insistently, sexualized uh, comments on your body? And if people respond uh, yes to, to, to any of these questions, they're listed as uh, having been a victim of street harassment over the last 12 months. 
in the Netherlands, people ask the same question. So have you been complimented uh, insistently, whistling, uh, hissing, more or less the same behaviors? And the follow-up question is, uh, in, in which case did you like it? In which didn't, didn't you like it? Uh, when was it harassment for you? And only in the cases when the respondent indicates themselves that they felt it was harassment, are they counted as harassment? Uh, so it gives really different uh, prevalence numbers, actually. It really raises the question, who, who decides when it's harassment? Is it the researcher, police officer, who hands out a fine? Is it always the victim? Is it, does there have to be an intention on the part of the, the person who harassed uh, someone? Yeah, so these are complicated debates. Just one more thing about consent is that I think one thing, and I hope I'm not too sort of overly optimistic about this, but it's, I think, what recent movements like the Me Too movement have done as well is not just that they've highlighted the importance of consent, but offered people very different ideas of what consent amounts to. So it seems that it's a very traditional idea of consent that, you know, as long as you just don't say no, and I mean, even if you don't do anything, then you've consented. And I think this is sort of one of the things that is coming out as well more, is that actually what consent involves is not about not saying no, but it's about actively saying yes to some um, way that you're being treated. Definitely. I think that's a big change in the conversation that has happened about what actually constitutes consent, what needs to be verbalized. And of course, I think more acknowledgement of the social pressures that could lead someone to maybe not feel comfortable enough to say no, but it definitely isn't a yes. I think that's certainly a huge part of it. To move a little away from this, Mary, I know you've worked a lot with feminist metaphysics, and so I want to ask how it links to or differs from mainstream feminism and what really is meant by feminist metaphysics and how it can be applied to issues in both Me Too um, or pornography and what one can take away from this. Like, how would one apply philosophy to these issues that we've been discussing? I'm not sure if I have a massively great answer to that, but um, let me try to uh, say something. So um, metaphysics as a field of philosophy has typically been one of the most, or let's put it this way, least hospitable uh, to, to feminist ideas and insights. So metaphysics is about what exists and what kinds of things exist. And it's often been very much about sort of what the fundamental structure and furniture of reality is. Then of course, if you have that view, then lots of things just sort of fall off the face of face of reality, um, including questions about gender, including questions about sex, um, questions about oppression, um, about groups that are facing oppression and who are not. Um, and that's sort of what my original research was about. Misha, you mentioned Catherine McKinnon there earlier. Um, Catherine McKinnon is a sort of a very typical second wave feminist um, who was then accused of having a too much of an essentialist idea of what it is to be a woman. I mean, her view was that gen gender is defined in terms of sexualized dominance and submission relations. So what it is to be a woman is to be um, sexually submissive. And then in the sort of late 80s and early 90s, um, Judith Butler very sort of famously came along in these debates and had an idea about gender not being something that we are, but gender being something that we do. So there is no such thing as gender cause, it's just that we engage in this, as she puts it, kind of stylized repetition of gendered acts. And this sort of had the effect in the sort of 90s of people literally saying things like, there are no women, 
there is no gender. And to me, this sounded very tough as a, as a then political feminist, because if there are no women, then there is no patriarchy and then there is no oppression. Um, but we see that all the time and we're encountered with it. And it just seemed to me that we've got to have some way of theoretically being able to talk about gender and gendered kinds and gender groupings um, without this sort of essentializing aspect that was part of the older sort of second wave feminism. And that's really the sort of the idea about feminist metaphysics is that one of the key questions there is, or key issues is to think about the nature of gender. And that has of course then had a much bigger repercussions and, and sort of much bigger effect now when we are then thinking about the relationship between gender and sex. By sex I mean a sort of sexed bodies and sexual difference and also about trans identities. I'm thinking that you know there's not just two genders that we're not you know we shouldn't just be kind of confining our talk to women and men but that there's a whole proliferation of different different genders and how is it that being a member of certain gendered kinds then puts you puts one in a position of social privilege or subordination. So that's sort of how my work there is, is connected. It's a really interesting question. The effects of saying there is no gender or gender is a constant social performance or so, so, social product. So as I said before, in France, there was this really widely available vocabulary of patriarchy, which was very dominant in, in public debates, in the media, in, in, in uh, policy. Activists really, really conceived of street harassment as a problem of women as a, as a class, so to speak, who, who have a similar social experience and suffer from similar forms of domination, such as uh, street harassment. And this vocabulary was uh, very absent in the Netherlands, actually. So one of the questions that I tried to explore was why is this vocabulary so, so absent in the Netherlands? And that's also, you see really that there's a change in the 90s. Uh, which relates very much to this development in a way that, although there's also other, de other developments, but part of this change uh, relates to the development that Marie just, just talked about, that um, if you look at the 1980s in the Netherlands, in, in comparative reports, the Netherlands is often cited as a country with one of the strongest uh, institutionalization of, of feminism, with a very strong emphasis in, in policy on structural gender inequalities, violence against women as a product of structural inequalities between women and, uh, and men. And during the 90s and, to, and uh, 2000, it's this unsymmetric approach in that sense, which really talks about structural differences between the condition of men and the condition of, of women. It kind of disappears and, and neutralizes in a sense. And that has very much to do with developments within services working on, on gender-based violence. So uh, the inclusion of more identities, right? So we see in this period that many services working on uh, victims of violence start to include victims of color, for instance, LGBT uh, persons and also start to work on uh, men who are victims of, of violence. So this whole development kind of problematizes the idea of uh, woman, victim, man, uh, perpetrator. And many services start to, start to feel this, this distinction is moralistic, is, is too ideological, we need to be more open. So you see many services starting to adopt a more neutral language that instead of speaking of victims and perpetrators, they start to speak about people in, in a violent situation. So this call for more openness, obviously really important. According to feminists nowadays, might have had the unfortunate result that it's become harder to talk about problems that women specifically face. So, so, so I guess, yeah, that, that's a classic dilemma kind of between uh, inclusivity and, and being attentive to diversity, while at the same time uh, recognizing that, that there are structural differences that touch uh, women, for instance. Although as a metaphysician of many, I'm a very pluralistic metaphysician, I feel that sometimes these problems are created a bit too sort of artificially. 
and that there are ways in which we can sort of think about inclusion and difference and sameness without sort of always kind of running into these these old um, these sorts of problems. Um, so I, I think I recognize that these problems do take place and certainly in public discussions and sometimes I find, I mean often I find that it's a real shame because I don't think that those discussions need to go that way. I mean having said that I think there was something about the discussions that made patriarchy very difficult to understand. I certainly don't think that women alone I've just said that I don't like using the term victim very much, but I was just about to say that I don't think women alone are victims of patriarchy, but I think it's true. For me, feminism is fighting gender and or sex-based oppression and discrimination and domination. And people of, of all genders um, can be affected by gender injustices. So this is my hopeful, hopefully sort of positive um, message about how metaphysics, metaphysics can help us politically is to think about those social structures in a different way. So we're slowly reaching the end of our time. So just as a ending note, um, how do you think others can engage with these issues that have been discussed today? Um, how can they connect to it? Really, anyone in general in terms of changing the narratives or help out to dismantle the patriarchy, let's say. And is there a main thing you hope listeners take away from today? Yeah, maybe one point I'd, I'd like to make is that I think it's important for men to get involved. So often uh, in these debates on, on sexual violence and, and harassment, we tend to focus a lot on victims who we try to help in, in speaking out. But speaking out, denunciation, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very important step, but it's only a first step, right? And uh, I think it's important to, to, to think about gender-based violence. Uh, it, it's mostly committed by men. So I think it's important to, to think about gender-based violence as a, as a men's problem in which men need to be involved in discussions about this, policies on this, uh, shouldn't only be focused on, on victims' uh, services, but also on awareness raising among uh, men. Because that, that, that's really a tendency you see in a lot of policy that like, ministries for, 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 for education, for social services tend to uh, have financing for victim services and focus mostly on victims. Uh, and once we talk about uh, perpetrators, that's the Ministry of Justice, right? So that's mostly in the penal system. I think it's important to, to yeah, not, not focus only on men as, as uh, perpetrators in, in a carceral kind of way, but uh, yeah, work with men on, on awareness raising. Yeah, and in that sense, I would argue it's also important to not dismiss too easily discussions about uh, men's intentions, for instance. Obviously, in, 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 in a more denunciatory discourse, when men say they were just trying to, to, to flirt, that's just a way to minimize the problem. And, um, and yes, obviously, it can often be a way to minimize the problem. But I think there are real discussions to be had about different intentions, different ways of looking at the same situation, even though men, some men might, might be wrong considering that they, had, they didn't have bad intentions when they whistled someone, for instance, or when they, they catcalled someone. I think it's important to engage in detail with that and uh, to speak with men, with men about, okay, you had this intention, but do you think it's the best way to express this desire to enter into contact with, uh, with, with a woman? Yeah, so that, that would be my call for men to get actively involved in uh, this issue. Yes, I mean, I don't disagree with everyone taking active steps to try to address injustice. Um, perhaps as someone who has struggled for a really long time with saying to people well what do you do and then my answer is I'm a, I'm a professional feminist I get paid to be a feminist and this is of course um, a big source of prejudice I mean people have very very strong pre-theoretical views about what feminism is and what feminists um, 
believe and what they argue for and what they fight for. And, and it's often extremely um, caricaturistic um, and not something that I do or people I know in the profession who are other sort of feminist philosophers would, would be even committed to. And perhaps here, I mean, something, and I, I mean, maybe I'm simply not familiar enough with the Netherlands, but it certainly feels that there's also quite common stereotypes about what it is to be a feminist um, also in this country that are along these kind of very stereotypical caricature ways. One thing to bear in mind is that even though I completely agree that people should take responsibility and, and find, think about their personal behavior in the way that Misha, you were talking about, it's also just not the, the case that we're here um, trying to, you know, get rid of men or blame them in a sort of burn them at the stake or something, something like that. I mean, what we're dealing with are structural forms of oppression and discrimination. Structural here being the key issue. And that is something that people really need to think about, inform themselves if, if they are not yet too familiar what that means. But, but we're talking social structures where even people with very good intentions can perpetrate easily forms of injustice. Social psychologists apparently have a saying that the road to injustice is paved with many good intentions. Um, and that's simply because of the way that we tend not to be always that aware of of, of what we're doing, even when we think that we are. And so hopefully um, that's something that readers, sorry, listeners <laughs> will we'll take with them. Thank you so much. Both of your research was incredibly interesting to listen to, uh, to see how your research has uh, impacted your view on the feminist movement and the issues that plague women today. We'd also like to thank you for putting a spotlight on what feminism really is and showing the listeners and, and teaching them about the struggle that women have to go through and what we can do to help the, to that situation in general. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to, to discuss with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. Stay tuned for next month's episode on climate change. Thank, Thank you. you.